I, I wanted to learn the the neural correlates, the brain activation of lucid dreaming toward creating a universal way to induce lucidity, like a, a device, a, a drug, or a technique. Welcome to the Lucid Podcast. This is your host, Torge. And this is Leo. Our goal is to have interesting conversations all around lucid dreaming with authors, scientists, entrepreneurs, and passionate practitioners. So, who's our first guest, Torge? I'm very happy to introduce our first guest, Mark Goldenson. Mark started out by conducting four years of brain research on lucid dreaming at Stanford's Psychophysiology Lab, together with probably the most prominent figure in lucid dreaming, Stephen LaBerge. Afterwards, Mark went on to found several technology startups like Breakthrough, which was a leading online therapy service in America. We will talk about his personal lucid dreaming journey, his lucid dreaming research at Stanford, how Mark imagines the future of lucid dreaming, and also the potential of hardware devices and drugs to induce lucid dreams. This episode is brought to you by Lucid, the lucid dreaming app. With Lucid you can learn and master the art of lucid dreaming. You can find it in the App Store and in the Play Store. It's also linked in the show notes of this episode. Have fun. Hello Mark, thanks for joining our podcast. You are our first guest. Um, let's start directly from the beginning. How did you find out about lucid dreaming? Well, first, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I watched Star Trek's Next Generation as a kid and loved the concept of the holodeck, this room you could go into that would create any physical experience you wanted. You could enter it and play out fantasies, practice skills, talk with historical figures. It was magical. A friend said, you know, the holodeck is sort of real through this experience called lucid dreaming. He explained it was dreaming while knowing that you're dreaming, conscious dreaming. And with practice, you can learn how to lucid dream regularly and actually guide the dream content, similar to the holodeck. So uh, I got the seminal book in it, which was Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming by Stephen LaBerge at Stanford. I tore through it and became fascinated that this was real. And how long did it take you to have your first lucid dreaming? I don't remember exactly. It was a long time ago. But uh, best memory I can guess is maybe a month or so. And how old were you at that, age, at that time? I was maybe 13 years old, living in Arizona. So um, when you entered university, you studied at Stanford and mm -hmm. you worked for four years with Stephen LaBerge at the psychophysiology lab and did brain research on lucid dreaming. This probably then influenced you, right? Your experience as a kid to, to study together with Stephen LaBerge? Yes. I mean, I remember... Uh, one of my early dreams uh, was I remembered that I, I realized I was dreaming and I became super excited. I took this running start and I started to fly and I flew through clouds and I felt the, the moisture on my face and I saw the ground way below me and felt amazed that this was really happening, even if it was a, a creation of my brain. So it, it gave me an, an early window into how powerful the brain is and, and sparked my interest in neuroscience. So when I was looking at colleges, I, I knew that LaVerge was at Stanford. It had a top psychology department. I thought, well, that, that seems like it would be a, a worthy pursuit to, to learn about lucid dreaming and try and bring it to more of the world. What was your personal motivation to start learning lucid dreaming? As a, a teenager, wish fulfillment was certainly a strong part of it. Being able to fly or have sex with supermodels, eat whatever I wanted, throw fireballs, fight dragons. When, when you're young, there are often a lot of restrictions, right? And here was a space where there were no physical or, or social constraints. That's very appealing. Over time, what happened is, uh, and it tends to happen with other people too, is as you become more experienced with it, 
the wish fulfillment gets a, a bit old and the drive for it goes down and the drive to explore and, and seek higher meaning goes up. And, and there might be an important lesson to this, which I'll admit I'm still wanting myself, which is that you know, wealth and power and comfort can, can bring contentment for a while, but um, maybe this ongoing happiness tends to be found in, in being part of something greater than yourself. And I'd guess most people don't reach the level of wealth and power they want, but lucidity can fulfill any physical wish and it's freely available to everybody. So it's a sort of a way to experience immense wealth and power and realize maybe for yourself that it doesn't solve all your problems. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, can you tell us about your most interesting lucid dreaming experience that you ever had? This is one, honestly, I don't have a great answer to. Uh, I think the first one was powerful because it was it was this aha moment. Um, but a lot of them happened so long ago, I'd have to like go to my dream journal. I can remember somewhere I was... Um, or I was talking with historical figures, um, or um, kind of just doing creativity or practicing skills. But I actually don't think that I have one that was most interesting, maybe other than the first, which I know is not that interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Then let's talk about your time at Stanford again. Um, so you did brain research on, on lucid dreaming. What exactly um, did you do? Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to learn the, the neural correlates, the brain activation of lucid dreaming, toward creating a universal way to induce lucidity, like a, a device, a, a drug, a technique. We started with dual EEG and fMRI brain scan scanning, brain imaging, which required people to fall asleep in an fMRI scanner that's whirring away at 100 decibels. That's, that's as loud as a jackhammer, so it's not easy to find people who can fall asleep like that. Narcoleptics have actually been using this kind of research because they fall asleep in, in almost any condition. The challenges that research led us to focus on just the EEG correlates of lucid dreaming, it was slow because I was taking Stanford classes during much of this time, staying up all night for the research when I could and learning how to do brain imaging. The, the lab published some interesting research at this time around how out-of-body experiences are similar to lucid dreams, uh, suggesting that some of these experiences may actually be vivid dreams. We also found evidence that dream cognition, dream thinking, is more similar to waking thinking than previously thought. Overall, part of what I learned is I, don't, I really believe in research, but it wasn't a good fit for me personally. It's, it's pretty solitary. It has long feedback cycles, requires a lot of repetitiveness. Uh, the, the technology.com boom was happening on campus around the same time, and I, I found building technology was a better fit for me. Uh, shorter feedback cycles, more interaction with people, more novelty. But I'm very thankful there are people who love research. Stephen LaBerge is probably the most prominent figure in lucid dreaming, and um, I think many regard him kind of as this this magical um, person that brought the space so forward. Uh, what was it actually working with him uh, on a daily basis? Steven's wonderful. He's brilliant. He cares deeply about people. He had the resilience to persist through a long period of people doubting that lucid dreaming was real or worth studying. Consciousness was this this ugly term in psychology for a while was too vague and you weren't seen as serious or a lot of people were focusing like the vision system though. Like there've been, you know, Nobel prize one for uh, visions, maybe multiple if I remember correctly. Um, but he was willing to be misunderstood for a long time. And he also took me and, and other students under his wing and spent meaningful time with us teaching us these research methods. So I'm very grateful for him. I, I would maybe like go back to um, to the, the first part, like to your uh, personal experiences. So you had your first uh, lucid dream after one month of uh, of trying to achieve it, right? Uh, like how fast did you make progress? So what did it look like for you? 
I don't seem to be a natural lucid dreamer, so honestly, it was slow. Uh, for people who aren't familiar, you it is a learnable skill for most people, I would say, but you it, it's beneficial to practice multiple skills, like uh, keeping a dream journal, noticing patterns in your dream, doing something that's called um, reality testing, so uh, reading text, looking away, reading again, seeing if the text changes, because when you're awake, of course it won't, but in your dreams, our research shows that, it, that some significant feature of it will change about 25% of the time, like the text or the color, or the, the words themselves. And that's a cue that you're actually dreaming. Uh, and, and the lab did some research to, to show this. So I, it took time to practice some of the skills. I had more time when I was in high school. Uh, but w- on those those times when I did have lucid dreams, they were very powerful. It was unlike anything else that I was experiencing up to up to that point. Uh, so uh, I was motivated when when I when I had them. Yeah, maybe in the best best days of you, how often did you had lucid dreams? Like on a weekly basis, or mm-hmm. how, how often? Probably once every few nights for me. Uh, I wasn't getting as much sleep as I wanted to as a high school student. I, I did no great sleep hygiene. I would say that's also one of the important aspects to this, that in a average eight hours of sleep, the typical adult gets about 90 minutes to 120 minutes of REM. And you get more REM as the night goes on. So you get about 10 minutes in your first cycle and you get up to about an hour in your last cycle. So one of the that several reasons that I think lucid dreaming is hard for people is that they need to learn how to sleep better, to sleep longer so they can have more REM and have more chance to become lucid. And uh, Americans at least are chronically sleep deprived, especially right now. So if you're only getting say five or six hours of sleep, you're getting less REM. So uh, investing in a comfortable bed and learning the the tactics of of sleep hygiene are important. And I I didn't know those as well. Uh, But for the times that I had it, it was uh, amazing. Yeah. And and which techniques did uh, did you try, which worked out for you, and which maybe didn't? Yeah, I kept I kept a dream journal. I I observed dream signs. Like a lot of my dreams had to do with water. I don't know if I was drinking water before <laughs> I was going to sleep, and so my bladder was telling me, "Hey, there's something going on here." Uh, reality testing. So I would already I would test about five to ten times. I also tried uh, what are called uh, uh, wilds wake induced lucid dreaming. So uh, waking up late in the cycle, uh, maybe journaling for 30 or 60 minutes and then going back to sleep. And then um, there's a theory that, uh, at least last I've heard that because your central nervous system is activated, uh, you are more likely to induce a good dream. And I believe we, we showed that with some of the, the research. Uh, so that was helpful. We didn't, uh, I don't remember knowing about galantamine, uh, which maybe we can talk about later in some of the other compounds that show some evidence of, of inducing lucid dreams. So it was mainly psychological techniques for me. And also, uh, when I came to Stanford, uh, using the, the Nova dreamer, the dream light, some of the devices that, uh, detect REM and try and send light and sound signals that enter into your dream and try and tell you that you're dreaming without waking you up. Yeah. Great. And, um, like when, when doing wild, um, how did you deal with sleep paralysis? Because it's something that, I think a lot of beginners are afraid of and it can feel really uncomfortable. How did you deal with that? I got that too. And I agree with you. It, it was, it's uncomfortable, right? It's, it's a bit discouraging when it happens. So for those who know, it's, it's this where the experience where you wake up or you're up uh, consciously, but you can't move because uh, for most people, our muscles are inhibited when we're asleep and especially um, I said that we, 
for most people, we are uh, inhibited when we're sleeping, and that prevents us from acting out our dreams. Uh, so if you imagine if we were uh, back when we were uh, primates and uh, if we were sleeping in trees or in a cave and we started acting out our dreams, like we would put ourselves in danger. So uh, unfortunately, sometimes when you're practicing this, you do wake up, but your muscles are still inhibited. And it is a, it's a uncomfortable experience. I remember feeling, you know, pain for a minute or two and it's, you want to move, but it's, it, it feels like walked in syndrome, I imagine. Um, so I, I did learn over time to relax some through that and, and that did help moderately, but it still was uncomfortable. So you had your one friend that knew about lucid dreaming who told you about it. What about the rest of your social circle? So when I first found out about lucid dreaming when I was 13 and, and I told my friends about it, in class, everybody thought I was totally nuts. I was crazy. Mm -hmm. um, I can imagine that you would also tell everybody, you know, um, after you had your first lucid dream, um, you have this desire to tell everybody about it. How did people react? Yeah, I, I had a similar experience where I, at first I didn't believe in myself. And as I read more about it, and then especially in, when I had my first lucid dreams, I became an advocate for as well. I, I couldn't understand how could this be a true experience that has actually been known in some form for hundreds of years, probably thousands of years. If you, if you consider um, the Tibetan culture and other cultures that have some kind of dream uh, practice in their society, how could this not be better known? And I remember talking to Stephen uh, about this, this is as a, as a side here. And, uh, I'd say like the, the experience is so outside the norm that a lot of societies are, they struggle with altered states of consciousness or things that don't fit into a narrative. Um, and so it's, it, it, it challenges established norms. And uh, a lot of people just don't, aren't comfortable with that. And, and I think that was true in my experience too. Like, well, Mark's kind of weird and <laughs> he, uh, he, he may just be confused or, or maybe this is something some people can do. And we just didn't know as much about the research, but I felt confident enough in my experience that this was actually research-based that I, I continued to explore it. But it is an interesting question. Why is it not more widely known, widely practiced? Why isn't there a ton, why aren't there a ton of researchers looking at this uh, instead of, say, something like the vision system, which is not fully understood for sure, but was much better understood. If you're, if you're saying, and this is something I, I still honestly don't understand. When I came to Stanford, there were all these people studying like memory and emotion and vision, areas that uh, there's plenty to learn about, but have not been, um, that have been more, I would say, understood than this area of lucid dreaming. And, and, and lucid dreaming has such practicality uh, application that uh, I still don't quite understand. And I think one of my best guesses on why that is, is it's just such an unusual experience. And if, uh, if you, everybody's had experience with emotions or vision or memory, and so they can relate to it. But if you can't relate to it, then it's hard to understand. And do you feel that kind of changed over the last 25 years, the general perception of lucid dreaming? A bit, but from my perspective, not a lot. I, I'd, I'd be curious what the research shows on this, if it's better known. There are some movie depictions of lucid dream-like states, right? Like Vanilla Sky, Inception, The Matrix, Total Recall. But I don't think it's as widely understood and as appreciated given its upside, right? given that we all have basically the potential of the holodeck in our, in our head, and you can learn it for basically free, right? The information online is widely available. You just have to be willing to invest the effort. And if you, if you were an alien and didn't know humans and said, you know, you, you, could, you could have the holodeck, you could have wish fulfillment, anything you want, be a reality and practice skills and uh, be creative and 
uh, all the different benefits of lucid dreaming, I would I would think that uh, it'd be much more popular than it is. I, I think my best guess on why that isn't is that it is still a, a hard skill to learn for a lot of people. Unfortunately, it requires consistent efforts, say, you know, practicing this sleep hygiene, um, perhaps keeping a dream journal, observing dream signs. And when there are other either states of consciousness that are more available by by just taking a simple drug or or you have your smartphone and Instagram and other ways of consuming your time, it, it just may not be as appealing. And, and so I think the number one thing we need is why I, is what I came to, to Stanford to do, which is to create a, a reliable universal lucid dream induction method. We're, we're just not there yet. I mean, there are many people that are trying to create lucid dreaming sleep masks and, and similar hardware devices like this. Have you checked them out? Do you think any of them sound actually promising? So I'm familiar with the early ones, like the, the Nova Dream and the Dreamlight. I've looked a bit at the latest ones. I'm honestly not um, up to date on all of them. They, they all seem to have this common uh, feature of trying to detect REM and send light and sound signals, which makes sense. But it's non-trivial to design a mask that people don't want to like, throw against the wall, uh, sometimes unintentionally when they wake up or something that's comfortable, to find the, the right level of sound and light that will enter the dream but not wake people up. Uh, to make it affordable. Um, and uh, it may be that the, the right technique is actually not a mask. It might be a drug, but now you're in drug discovery. And and there are better drug discovery methods these days. AI is being used increasingly, but to get a drug approved is, say, five to 10 year process, requires a billion dollars. And there are so many conditions that uh, we know that we want to cure that take priority Uh, so I don't think Pfizer is is going to be allocating a billion dollars to invest in lucid dreaming drug anytime unless they really had evidence that there was something promising. So in the meantime, we have we have compounds like galantamine that uh, that show some promise, but they're not they're not a magic pill. Um, have you tried out galantamine for yourself? I have. It it helps a little for me personally, but uh, it it didn't work as well as I would have hoped. Hmm. Um, and so we are also studying product management, right? And one thing that you do is you create these personas of different people. And uh, we are also doing that for lucid dreaming. And we see that there are many different subgroups that are interested in lucid dreaming. So we have maybe the biohackers who want to um, work on themselves, train their skills, um, kind of make the most out of life. Then we also have a very spiritual group, right? Mm -hmm. Um who are then maybe also into astral pro, uh, projection and, and things like this. Um, then what we also also notice, like in, in both of our cases, um, that there are many young people that are in high school that have kind of um, a lot of time uh, who just want to have fun. Um, what do you think? Do you see any other groups? And what, what do they have in common? What differentiates them? Yeah, there's, a, there's another group that I thought actually has a lot of promise, which is prisoners. So prisoners have a lot of time and uh, often have a lot of issues that they want to work through. And uh, I, I think it'd be great to, to take lucid dreaming programs to them and provide them a, a measure of freedom that's within their own mind that they don't have physically. But I would say uh, more than personas, the one I've thought about is just applications, because I think that you're right, just right to think about personas from a PM perspective. In terms of applications, I, I think there, there are six main ones that I've seen. Um, it often starts with this wish fulfillment, right? Doing things that are physically fun, like eating or sex or flying. Uh, then curing nightmares, if, if, if you have that, because the nightmare is the, 
the the fear is real, but the danger is imagined. And so once people realize that the, the tiger that's chasing them is not real, they can diffuse the nightmare. It was actually this great story from the lab where this this man had a recurring dream of running from a tiger that would be chasing him. And he learned a lucid dream and uh, became, became lucid in one of these dreams where he was being chased by a tiger. And the tiger leaped at him and he faced it. And uh, in midair, the tiger morphed into a beautiful naked woman. And the dream report says that the dream took on a very different direction from, from there. <laughs> uh, other than nightmares, so practicing skills. Uh, so you'll, people who will practice shooting hoops or speaking in front of an audience or uh, skiing or lots of, you can set up these environments that are quite immersive, better than VR, really, because it's using your, your natural hardware, the same used to simulate, uh, to, to create the, the rest of the, the world that we experience. Uh, problem solving. Uh, it's a great for setting up uh, environments where you can think through things like you can talk with historical figures that obviously are still, I, I think, yourself, but can embody a different part of your of yourself, a more creative or analytical or thoughtful or challenging part of yourself. Uh, in fact, it's also physical problem solving as part of this. So there was one architect we had who would kind of like Inception, imagine these entire buildings and fly through them and and rearrange furniture and doors and uh, set up the world in a way that, that would solve the problem of how to design a, a building in the way that he wanted. Uh, a fifth is creativity. So for artists, it's a great medium to do things you just can't do in the real world and see how that feels and then try to mimic that uh, in the real world. You can not just limit it to paint, but you can use you know light and um uh, basically anything you can imagine uh, visually or, or physically in, in the space uh, to create something that resonates with people. Uh, and then finally, I, I think it's, it's maybe what you considered the highest uh, application in some sense, uh, spirituality, express ex- the exploration of self, of, of who am I, what m- memories, biases, fears, prejudices, desires, and, and the universe more broadly. And, and there are great stories of people who uh, have met a, a deity uh, or their, their understanding of a deity and, and how powerfully that impacted them. Um, and maybe as part of this, you can part of the potential application of dreams is to live out lifestyles, directions of your life to see how they feel. Uh, in fact, Bill DeMent, he, uh, he was a smoker for a time. This is uh, considered by some of the, the father of sleep medicine and one of the, the mentors to our lab. And he had a dream where he died of lung cancer, died of smoking, so he was smoking at the time. And that was enough to trigger him to stop smoking. And it's just one of the powerful aspects of our brain, right? That we can model out uh, potential outcomes and then make decisions based on that. Uh, do you have some uh, some personal examples for those, uh, uh, like, like maybe how you solved the problem in a dream or how you've like found out something about yourself? I, I, I vaguely remember that I did, but... Uh, there are some famous examples that where I, I know a bit more of the details. So I can remember the more of them. Like a, um, I believe that the, the person who discovered the benzene molecule had uh, a dream where he was trying to solve like what is what could be the structure of this weird compound, and he couldn't he couldn't figure it out. He was thinking in terms of lines, and he had, if I remember right, a, a dream of a snake eating its own tail, and then he had the idea, the insight that maybe benzene is a ring. It's a ring molecule. Um, and so you'll find other examples of that of, of because dreams are, they, there is no physical constraint 
it, it's a it's a nice conduit to imagine combination of things that we haven't before. So I was reading this book about flow, and mm -hmm. in that it also talked about how Google is working on many different things to increase the performance of employees um, and doing a lot of research on that. Have you seen, I mean, you work at Google, um, any um, training for lucid dreaming or anything uh, lucid dreaming related? I haven't. It's a it's a good idea. They, they have a ton of <laughs> cool perks, but uh, I haven't seen that one. So I read about uh, Ray, Ray Kurzweil, who also works at Google, and mm -hmm. he also um, practices lucid dreaming to... Um, solve problems and come up with creative solutions. And I found out about you through this old blog post from Tim Ferriss, where he wrote about lucid dreaming. And I'm wondering, um, did you meet other maybe uh, also known tech entrepreneurs who are solving um, problems uh, through lucid dreaming? Yeah, I've met some. I, I think the theme here is entrepreneurs are more willing to challenge the status quo and accept that There are, there are strange things that are out in the world that are worth paying attention to. Uh, so some use it for creative problem solving, for practicing skills, for uh, stress reduction. Um, I think the challenge for the, the founders I've met is that for most people, it requires a fair amount of effort to, to learn. And entrepreneurs are already often stressed and, and time pressured. So it, it's hard to invest the time. That's, that's why we need this reliable method that's easy. And why don't you, uh, do you think that not more of those people are trying to work on lucid dreaming related solutions? I mean, yeah. because they are the right people for it, right? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I think that there are, so there, I would say there are three main ways that this, this problem could be tackled of how to induce lucidity reliably, uh, a drug, a device, or a technique. So if we get to start with the technique, That's, I think, currently the most available, because it's free, basically, way to induce lucidity, right? So the tactics we talked about, keeping a dream journal and noticing dream signs. But it requires a fair amount of effort. It's, it's the most effortful. If we look at devices, uh, there are, it looks like, about a dozen on the market. But uh, as we talked about earlier, it's, it's hard to create something that's comfortable and that works uh, reliably. Uh, it's either signal softening too, too low. And so they don't enter into the dream and act as a memo that you're dreaming or they're too strong and they wake people up. And so I, I, I think an avenue to explore there is how can you personalize that better in a short amount of time so that they work better for people, uh, as well as maybe finding new, new materials that are more comfortable. Um, and then the final is the drug, uh, which would be the easiest, but requires, uh, the most capital up front, uh, or we probably know the least. And that's where I, I think we just need a fair amount of research. And so entrepreneurs, uh, you, maybe we need a, a, a researcher entrepreneur hybrid, right? There, there are these areas like substitute foods where uh, the, the founders or CEO may, may be a scientist as well and understand science. We, we may need that kind of the, the impossible foods kind of founder for lucid dreaming, who is also capable of building a team and a product. But I, I would be satisfied just with us having more research on this so that we can direct technology entrepreneurs to create something or, or drug uh, drug scientists to create something that can actually solve the problem. So if there's a person listening right now who's maybe also 15, 16, 17 years old, uh, in a few years, that person will go on to study and wants to research on lucid dreaming. Do you have any advice for that person? Well, first, I, I think it's a super exciting area because I'll tell you back 25 years ago, I could learn, I could read most of the papers in the field in like a month or two. 
And that's one of the big benefits of that. I mean, I don't, I haven't kept up with the research lately, but I'd be surprised if there's like a year's worth of articles now, where it's like you could spend a lifetime studying, say, you know, vision or, or, or memory. It's, it's they're just, there's so much that's been written about it. So many theories around it, but in this area, it's, I think still relatively shallow. So one, I would say is just learn what's been done. So you're not reinventing the wheel. Um, the second is, I, I do think that universities are a good place, like find places, uh, maybe like Stanford, where uh, there's some activity around this and learn the research methods. We, we now have more powerful brain imaging techniques than we did uh, 20 some years ago. Uh, and third, I think it just requires persistence. Um, I think you have to love research, which I ended up not loving. But if, if it resonates with you, uh, I, think it's, I think it's an immensely fruitful Field. I do think that it's not unrealistic to say that a Nobel Prize will eventually be won in either sleep or, or lucid dreaming. If you could actually learn what the, what the mechanism here and create a device from it, like I would say it's Nobel Prize worthy in terms of application. And, and I'm not the only one who said this about sleep more broadly, that we still don't know to a great amount of detail why we sleep. And uh, uh, that's a worthy question to try and answer. There are many different theories on why we dream. Um, Which one do you think uh, is the most prominent hmm. or promising? I don't know about prominent, but I'll say one I find compelling. It, well, first, it, there's some evidence that it's involved in consolidation of memory, that we are taking some of the short-term memories from the day and storing the most meaningful or useful and pertinent to uh, long-term memory. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier there's this idea that it helps us model out Uh, the world. Uh, though, though Stephen would say that some think that dreams are, are messages from the unconscious. And he would say they're more like uninterpreted poems. That when we have a dream, it does say arguably something about our desires and prejudices and biases, our memories about who we are. But it's up to us to decide what that means, that it may not be as directive of, as a dream saying, do X or you are Y. Um, I also think there's, there's a theory that this is just random activation of the brain that uh, occurs when we are doing this consolidation of memory. And because what our brain does is model the world. So if, if, if you just take what we're doing right now when we're awake, our brains are modeling the world. They're they're Uh, taking a bunch of inputs, a bunch of sensations, and trying to create a story. And whatever the healing or consolidation processes are happening during sleep, our brain does what it does. It creates a story. It, it knits these elements together into something that makes sense to us. So it may be random. It just may be an output of, of what brains do when they're resting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, And do you still dream lucid? Are you still keeping a dream journal? Um, what does your practice nowadays look like? <laughs> so I've actually been, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say, out of practice for a while. Uh, because I'm not a natural lucid dreamer, it required a decent amount of effort for me to keep it up. Uh, I'm working on other things now, like building a meditation practice and maintaining exercise and, uh, and just staying sane and during this all this uh, COVID stuff. Uh, but it is something I'd like to return to. Uh, especially if, if there are some tools that can make it easier because uh, it is an amazing experience. Have you noticed uh, that or how meditation influences your lucid dreaming practice? 
No, not personally. I because I I didn't start building meditation practice back when I was lucid dreaming, but I would believe that it's helpful because one of the best ways to to practice lucid dreaming is to be aware of your environment, to be curious, to be thoughtful about it, to when you see someone with four eyes walk by to not go on autopilot and say, "Oh, there's a person," but to reflect and think, "Well, why does that person have four eyes?" And I think a meditative practice it's getting you out of your default mode and being more uh, open and present to to the moment. Uh, so I would believe, it is just a theory, some uh, postdocs should, should go and study this, that uh, meditation uh, practice, I would guess, improves uh, rate of lucidity. Do you, do you think that lucid dreaming could ever become as mainstream as meditation, for example? And what would it take I do. And it's been great to see how meditation has become more in mainstream in part through apps like Headspace and Calm that make it easier to learn. I, I think it's inevitable. The, the, the benefits are so significant that what we just need is, is a reliable, universal induction method. So that's the bottleneck. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that we could have that. And assuming it's reasonably priced that a whole bunch of people go, ah, I, I don't need the holodeck in my life. Why would I want that? Uh, if you look, it was how if we look at what's the, what's the market for wish fulfillment alone, right? All the things that people like to do to feel good, uh, you know, hundreds of billions, arguably. Uh, and so I, sorry, uh, I, I think eventually it's a massive market. Uh, and, and it, and that's one of the reasons why it isn't, it is surprising that more entrepreneurs haven't tackled it, um, because there aren't many competitors in the space. But again, it requires this combination of science and technology that is hard to find. Do you have any advice for people who are new to lucid dreaming and are learning it but haven't had success yet? I would say keep at it. It's 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 similar to I, I suspect like building a meditation practice or building an exercise habit that uh, you can't just go through like you know one exercise session and say okay, well now I expect my biceps to be huge, right? Uh, you do have to you have to practice it for a bit, typically about three to four weeks until you see any results on any of this. So it requires either you know, confidence or, or leap of faith a bit. Uh, and, and I struggle with that myself sometimes with meditation, right? It can feel like I, I tend to be a striver, really focused on achievement and just sitting and, and just observing my thoughts for 30 minutes can feel really taxing. But uh, I've heard this, this saying around meditation that I, I, I think is maybe relevant here to, to Mr. Dreaming that in meditation, when your mind distracts and you bring it back to your object of focus, like your breath, that's the rep, that's the bicep curl of meditation. And so with lucid dreaming, I would say just doing the, the effort, noticing your dream signs in reality or practicing the reality test, that's the rep. And if you can appreciate the effort you're putting in, the steps that, okay, eventually you're going to, this will eventually succeed, uh, that can create the motivation to see it through. And then when you have that first experience, right, when you, you wake up and you, see, and you see something that feels as real as reality, but is not reality, then at least for me, that was an aha moment that said, oh my gosh, this is definitely worth exploring. So if I'm someone who's not working on a new lucid dreaming device and I want to reach out to you, um, how can I do that? Yeah, if anyone's working on a novel application of lucidity or a way to induce it, Uh, they can reach me at mark, M-A-R-K, at VentureKit, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-K-I-T dot com, markadventurekit.com. I would love to help or possibly invest.
Thanks, Mark, for coming on the podcast. I think this was very interesting. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.